All right, we've been through Hebrews this year. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have several on the bar back there. If you don't have one, you just raise your hand. Somebody would be happy to go grab one for you. We uh, just entered into chapter 12 last week, covered verses 1 and 2. We're going to be going from verse 3 to verse 17 this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and read. I'll give you a second to get there if you need to. All right. Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, For our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Interesting. People tend to think that they don't deserve to suffer. Uh, there's, a, there's a basic assumption that many of us have in our culture that good people deserve good things and bad people deserve bad things. The problem is that when we evaluate right and wrong, we do so imperfectly, making judgments based on our own kind of relativistic Uh, perspectives and our finite understanding. We can always seem to find people who are in our eyes worse than us. Bad people deserve to suffer difficulty, we think to ourselves, but we rarely see ourselves as bad people. And so we most often think that we don't deserve to suffer. Chapter 12 of Hebrews has interesting things to say about suffering for Christians. Namely, it says that suffering is ultimately for our good, right? We just read that. And, and it's even imposed by God. That's hard for some people. It's imposed by God upon those whom he loves in order that we may share in his holiness, Last week we discussed the first two verses of of Hebrews, focusing on maintaining faith in the promises of God and not putting 
our trust in the lies of the world so, so that we may finish the race set before us with endurance. The emphasis of the first two verses was that we ought to look to Jesus and to put off anything that would cause us to look somewhere else. And as we move forward today, we also need to pursue, uh, we're hopefully going to see anyway, that not only do we need to put off the things that could drag us down, we also need to pursue, in a positive sense, things that are going to make us holy. Even though doing so often hurts. So, let's just talk a little bit about, about our uh, broken understanding of, of both suffering and blessings. Uh, we aren't alone in our thinking that good people ought to receive good things and bad people ought to receive bad things. The, the Jews largely believed this. And remember, Hebrews is being written to, to Jews and, and the church at large, but it was um, primarily a group of Jews. That's why it's called Hebrews. So they, they believed that this was true. The Old Testament also generally supports this idea that... So, uh, and it refers to it, uh, or I don't know that it actually uses this word, but, um, but something that, that has been used in kind of theology to refer to this kind of idea is the retribution principle. And the retribution principle is a major theme that, that you find in books like Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Job. You see it specifically. If you just wanted to get an idea of what it is, look in Deuteronomy 28. And we're not going to read that right here, but that's a good kind of just... Summary of what this kind of idea is, this retribution principle. It's the idea that God blesses those who are faithful to do his word and punishes those who are unfaithful to do his word. You can see this idea affirmed in many places throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, so we call it a principle. It's generally true. However, we sometimes, we and the Jews to whom this is written and throughout history, sometimes take this principle and try to make it an absolute standard. We use it as a measuring rod to determine how faithful somebody is to God. We, I think that we even do this to ourselves sometimes. When we suffer or when we're blessed, we think that it is somehow related to our faithfulness or our righteousness. When we're suffering, we question ourselves. Maybe we even question God. And we ask, what, what have we done to deserve this? When we're blessed, the other side of that, we get puffed up into thinking that we must have done something really great in order to be so blessed. In contrast to what we think, however, God's justice and mercy and his blessings and his punishments can't be reduced to a simple formula that can be wielded in the hands of men, though we may try. Last week we said that we need to have an eternal perspective that isn't merely focused on the things of the world. Many of us need to learn to maintain that perspective and allow it to shape our thinking as we consider things like blessings and hardships in this life. So as we return to Hebrews 12, we're being told once again, right here at the beginning, to look to Jesus. 
which is, that is the theme of Hebrews. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It's what we're talking about pretty much every week as we are in Hebrews. So let's look again at uh, verse 3. Keeping these kinds of things in mind. We're, what, I've, I've kind of set all that up because I, I feel like we, we really do hold to that kind of, that kind of concept. And I want to, to try to see what the Bible says. And again, like Hebrews 4.12 says, we're going to allow it to shape what we think. So we might need to evaluate how we think about these things. So verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We talked about this last week, suffering. Jesus did not deserve to suffer. He was the only one who ever lived who didn't deserve to suffer, and yet he did suffer. Horribly. Not only did he suffer horribly, he did so at the hands of sinners who had no right to condemn him. Not only that, he suffered at the hands of those for whom he was there to lovingly serve. If Jesus was not exempt from suffering, And if we are followers of Jesus, then surely we aren't exempt either. We're actually told by Jesus, several different places, to expect suffering as his followers. We're told that if the world hated him, how much more are they going to hate the people who claim to follow him? We're also told that in the world you will have trouble. But here's the good news, the good part of this. He says, but fear not because I have overcome the world. So why are we told to consider Jesus' sufferings? Because we know that we are going to suffer if we follow Christ. But, just like we talked about last week, but we have hope in Christ and in the knowledge that he has overcome every kind of trouble, everything in the world. We're told to focus on Jesus and his suffering so that we don't grow weary, so that we don't put our hope in something else. We have a hope that endures. In verse 4, he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. He seems to be indicating that the church that he's writing this to maybe has not been, no one's been martyred there yet. But we do know that they are enduring some sort of persecution. Persecution is growing among the church, and they're being, like we talked about last week, they're being forced to make this decision. What are you going to believe? What are you going to put your hope in? Because it's going to cost you something to say that you believe in Christ and that you put your faith in him. and, and, And not only that, but you proclaim that others ought to do the same. It's going to cost you something. And he says that we haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And he just talked about Jesus. So what do you, what do you think that this means? This, this, I think that this is obviously saying to us that were it to come to this, were it to come to resisting to the point of shedding your blood, you ought to. You ought to. We ought to be able to look at Jesus on the cross and, and absorb 
as much as possible. Everything that that means and everything that that is. And we ought to be able to turn away from that, putting our faith in that, look to the rest of the world and say, okay, me next. If it comes down to that, me next. And I wonder how, how much we are struggling against our own sin. I feel like this is something that, that convicts me. The, the concept of resisting. Not just resisting, but resisting to the point of your own physical burdens, your own physical hardships. I feel like there are several things in my life that still need plenty of sanctification. We'll put it that way. That there are, there are some things, and I think everybody has kind of their own, their own struggles. Everybody has their own things that they're struggling with that... When tempted by those things, we tend to just give in. And, you just, and, and it's just something that you've either justified for yourself or something that you just indulge in. And, and when it comes up, when that temptation arrives, you almost just don't even flinch. You just say, let's roll with this. And you just go with your first impulses. And... And I wonder how, I know that for me, this is something that needs to be seriously considered. How often do you actually resist? And I'm not just talking like you sit there and say, well, I know I don't need to do that, but not just, not just like this casual kind of resistance. The kind of resistance that would rather see yourself die than give in to sin. That's, that's a pretty tall order, I think, for a lot of us. And we don't think that way a lot of times. We, um, we, we talk, we've been talking about this with our, our redemption group and the guys group, where we're talking about fighting against sin. And we've been going through this book, Finally Free. And one of the, one of the chapters is about taking drastic measures. And it draws on Jesus saying, it's better for you to cut off your hand and go into heaven without a hand than it is to, to move forward in sin. And, and we hit on that idea a lot, the idea that our attitude towards sin needs to be serious. It needs to be that we would be willing to resist at great cost to ourselves, that kind of sin. So we're being told, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, because he... He endured the cross. He endured all these things. And he did not have to do any of that. He endured wrong against himself. So that he could resist sin. So that he could resist temptation. So that he could be glorified. And then glorify us as well. So this this is serious. When he says, you haven't resisted to this point. I think that that's kind of indicating that. That's, that's something that is going to be required of us, that we are going to resist to the point of death. At the very least, we've been talking about endurance. So maybe you don't, maybe you're not faced with kind of the, the situation we talked about last week where somebody's got a knife to your throat. But maybe this is just lifelong. And to the point of death, you are going to be resisting sin. Even if you die old and of, nat- let's say, natural causes, you still are going to be living a life a lifelong where you are constantly going to have to resist sin 
And so in doing this, we look, we look to Jesus as motivation to know that, yeah, horrible things might happen, but he has gone through it all and he's overcome every bit of that. So we resist in the name of Christ against sin, even to our own physical harm. There's hope in this, though. It's not all just like, oh, heavy, hard things. It is heavy and it is hard, but there's good news in this. Verse 5 and 6, he says, If you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He's quoting Proverbs. I think that it's interesting. I don't know. I haven't studied Proverbs recently. The Bible's really big. Forgive me. Um, I haven't gone back and, and studied Proverbs, but it's interesting, this kind of perspective on Proverbs. Proverbs is quoted only a few times in the New Testament, and it's almost just like people who write in the New Testament assume the perspective of Proverbs and speak out of that perspective most often. We don't have to go look at the, re- the references, but that's kind of the way that it's taken. Um, they, they speak in wisdom, saying the exact words of Proverbs. Here, though, it's kind of interesting because he's saying... This word in Proverbs is addressed to you as sons. Proverbs is written by by a man who wants to teach sons. He wants to teach young people to to be wise. He wants to teach them the value of wisdom and several different elements of wisdom. And, And he's pointing back to Proverbs. And he's saying that when Proverbs says, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. He's actually saying that that's God speaking to his children. That's interesting. And I don't know that I had ever necessarily thought of it that way. You learn a lot, especially in a book like Hebrews that quotes the Old Testament a lot. You learn a lot about how to go back and read the Old Testament by seeing the way that these authors in the New Testament read it. So he say, he's giving us good news, right? It's, it's not the easiest news, but this is good because he's just talked about resisting to the point of death. And now he's saying the Lord disciplines the one that he loves, And chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? This is pretty cool. that, That our relationship to God is being compared... To the relationship of a father with his son. Now some of us have a broken understanding of that kind of relationship. And so it's hard for us to see the value of that. But the value of that is that God is perfect in, in treating us as his sons. He's perfect as a father. Later on there it says that the fathers that we have here, they, they do what seems best to them. But... God, sorry, I want to quote it exactly. But he disciplines us for our good. So that seems to imply that our fathers here may not always discipline us for our good. It might be for their good that they're disciplining us. I can speak to that, having three kids now. I am imperfect. 
Sometimes the discipline that I exact on my kids is just as much about me just getting a break as it is anything. But, but God doesn't, doesn't do that. He's not petty. He, he loves us with an unconditional, with a perfect kind of love. And so when he comes at us with discipline, it's with great purpose, with great intent. And, and for us, that ought to be very encouraging. That ought to be very encouraging. Because no matter what our Father looks like here, we know that if we are in Christ, we are considered brothers and sisters with Christ. And we are considered adopted by God. We are his sons and daughters. And he treats us lovingly because of that. And even if we didn't have a good example here, we have a father that loves us because we've been adopted by God. And, and the suffering that we hate and that children in any circumstance, tend to hate, is always done for our good and for our, our best. And that's why he's saying, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in this, because why is this for our good? If, if we weren't disciplined, then what's, what's, what's the opposite of that? We we're left alone to do whatever we want. We're neglected. And, and without that discipline, without any kind of correction, without any instruction, we would wander away and ultimately suffer most because of that. So this suffering is for our good. We have some examples of this. In the Old Testament, uh, there, there are several examples throughout the Bible that you could point to. And, and we just went through Hebrews 11, talked about several different people who suffered in numerous ways. Uh, Joseph is obviously one of those who, who suffered greatly. It wouldn't seem like he had done anything really wrong, right? Because he was just sharing a vision with his brothers. His brothers so hated him that they sold him. And, he, and that was not pleasant. And, and he got into trouble. He was put in jail. And, and at the end of it, though, he's given a great responsibility. And, and through, through all of those difficult things, he's able to have a perspective that he would not have had if he had not gone through those things. He's able to speak to his brothers and say, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And that kind of perspective is only gained by having gone through such things, at least in the sense that it's, it's buried deep in your heart by living through those circumstances. It's, not, it's something that you can observe and say, yeah, I believe that that's true, but when you go through it, it gets planted in a way that will not be uprooted. Another one is, is Job, obviously, and this, this relates specifically to the retribution principle because this concept that, oh, don't good people deserve good things and don't bad people deserve bad things? Job was described as a, as a man who, who was faithful, who, who God pointed to as a model citizen. Like, Job, Job was a man worth emulating. And yet he suffered greatly. Satan was allowed to torment him. And Job, Job's friends 
speaking out of this same principle, they say, what have you done before God that you are being so cursed? Like, they, they, they speak out of this perspective, out of this, this concept that, man, bad things only happen to bad people, right? God curses those whom, whom are unfaithful. So Job must have done something horrible. And Job says, what have I done? What have I done? I, I was a good man. And God comes up and, and, and essentially says, who are you to question God? Where were you? When I created the entire world, where were you when I made these decisions? If you were righteous, show me your righteousness. He challenges him. He says, show me your righteousness. And Job is forced to be silent because he can't, he can't challenge God's justice and mercy. But at the end of it, he says, I had heard of you before, but now I see you. He endured these, these horrible things, but at the end of it, he gained this perspective that, that was only gained through the suffering that he endured. Jonah's another one, and that's a little bit different, right? Because he, he, we wouldn't exactly point him, build him up at the beginning and say, oh, what, a, what an awesome guy. This is kind of a different circumstance where God tells him to do something, and he says, no, I don't think so. And I'm going to do the opposite, actually, because this, this, this does not seem good to me. So God rebukes him in a very big way, right? Sends a storm. Everybody thinks they're going to die. He throws himself into the ocean, probably assuming, I'm going to die. He sits in a fish for three days, probably thinking, this is just a really slow and horrible way to die. <laughs> but at the end of it, this is used for his ultimate good. So we have all these examples, both, both faithful men and unfaithful men, who, who are disciplined by God for good. And, and I think that it's just as valuable, especially since we just looked at you know, Hebrews 11, all these people in the Old Testament, it's just as valuable to look towards those people and their example and to say, this is right. God does discipline us for our good. And it, he says, the point is, at the end of verse 10 there, but he disciplines us for our good. Why? It's not just for our good in like this general sense, like this generic, oh, it's going to be good for us somehow. What's specifically the purpose? That we may share his holiness. So that's, that's the goal of this suffering, of this discipline, this rebuke. The concept that in, in being reproved, in being disciplined, in being perfected, we are going to grow in holiness before God. And he, he admits, verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this, we, we have this perspective. The world has this perspective. I think in the church, a lot of us have this perspective that, that bad things happen to, good, happen to bad people or ought to. And the good things happen to good people. But I think that we have a broken perspective about what is bad. Because 
the things that happened to these people, the things that happened to Jesus, that was evil. Evil happened to Jesus. And it happened at the hands of evil people. And, and there's nothing good in the evil itself. But there is great good in what God does with that evil. So the things that we would call bad, we might be more accurate in saying, this is painful. But, but God is using this, and I can't see it yet, but God is using this for good. So, having that kind of knowledge, having that knowledge that these, these painful things, these hardships that we are having to endure, have hope, have purpose. What do we do? Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You kind of think of God as like doing, doing surgery, Right? It's like something, something about you is not right. You, you don't walk quite straight. And you need to be... This, this situation needs to be remedied. And it's going to take a surgery. And the surgery is going to be painful. It's going to require recovery time. It's going to require a process. It's going to take time. But the point is that when you submit to that and you say, yes, okay, this is for a point, this is for my good, then, then God works so that in the end you walk straighter. And this, is, this relates back to the, the very beginning of this chapter, right, where he's saying run the race, finish well, run with endurance. And he talks about giving off these weights, Letting go of these things that drag us down. He also talks about letting God do the work that's going to help you run the race. So, so we're encouraged by this. We find strength in our sufferings. It also says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. He turns his, he turns his, his perspective now a little bit to the church. And this is pretty common. We've seen him do this a couple of times in Hebrews. He's not just focused on individual believers running the race. He's not focused on individual, only on individual believers getting to heaven, putting their faith in Christ. He has concern for the church. And he includes himself as part of the church, as we've talked about before, over and over. He says, let us run this race. Let us do this. He's speaking us. He, he has a concern, like a pastoral concern for the entire church. He's saying we all need to put our faith in Christ. And we all need to realize that the hardships are for our good. And we need to take that information and not just apply it to ourselves, but apply it to the entire church. And we need to realize that, that all that God does is for the good of us and for the good of his church. So we encourage others, which we talked about back in chapter 10, right? We get together as a church to encourage one another. And we need to keep this in mind. I think that we are doing a whole lot of damage 
if somebody comes up to us in the midst of their suffering and we say something like, well, what, what, what sin is in your life? I mean, it's obviously, we all have sin. But to say, well, this is obviously the direct result of a sin that you have committed, that may or may not be true. Yeah. Trying to, to bring people down in the midst of their suffering is not, I don't think the perspective of this chapter. I think it's the opposite of, of what this chapter is saying because it's saying, be encouraged by these things. Don't grow weary in these things. The, the temptation for us is that in the midst of these sufferings, we will give up. We will say, it's, it's not something I can endure. I'm not good enough to do this. I cannot be corrected. I don't know if you've ever been in this kind of situation. He's telling us we need to endure. I recall at one point in my life that, that I kind of felt this way, um, and I'm going to relate it to my parents most particularly because it seems to fit within the context of kind of what we're talking about here. When I was around the age of about 19 or so in college, um, I still lived with my parents at the time, and it seemed like most of my interactions with my parents included some sort of attempt at rebuke, reproof, and, and it, for, for me, it seemed to just to signal to me that I could not do a single thing right. And, and that I was going to get nothing but judgment. And my mom, I remember in the kitchen one day, we're, we're sitting and we're talking to each other, and like, I just start getting kind of emotional because I'm thinking, what, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And, and she says, You're, you are not a bad kid. I'm just trying to make sure that we are leading you to do essentially the will of God. I want to point out these weaknesses in you so that we can work through these things. I'm not condemning you as a person. I'm not trying to tear you down. I'm trying to build you up. And at the time, I still don't know if I bought into that idea because I was just a little upset. <clears throat> but that's the kind of idea that when, when God brings discipline on us, it's not to tear us down. It's because He loves us. And if He didn't, then He would let us wander away and He would not care about it. But because He loves us, He's moved with, with compassion and love to do our greatest good, which is to prevent us from doing evil, from, doing, from living in sin. So that's, that's the sense of, of all, all of these exhortations when he's saying, don't grow weary, don't become faint-hearted. The, I wasn't quite sure what he meant. Like, physically weary? Physically faint-hearted? Are you talking, like, I need to have physical endurance? Because he does use a lot of physical kind of metaphors, ideas here. That's not really the idea. The idea is more that you would become despondent. That you would lose hope. 
that you would lose courage, that you would give up. He's saying, in the midst of all these things, don't give up in hopelessness, but realize that God is in charge and that he's doing this for your good. I will admit that towards the end of this chapter, uh, I stumble a little bit on 16 and 17. You know, Esau just kind of seems thrown in there, right? And not only does he seem kind of thrown in there, at least this is my thought when I first read this, um, it talks about something that we wouldn't necessarily attribute to Esau, I don't think. I'll read it again. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it becomes defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. It's interesting. Does this mean that Esau did not get forgiveness though he sought it by repentance? I don't think that that's what's being said here. This is a big, long, uh, well, it's not one sentence, but the sentence before it talks about this root of bitterness. And I feel like Esau got to the point that he was bitter about his circumstances. First of all, he gave away his birthright, which in those times was everything. It was his inheritance, it was his blessing, it was his his status, his stature. He gave it away for this brief, momentary what's the word I'm looking for? Pleasure, I guess. He says, I'm starving, give me some soup. And Jacob says, tell me your birthright. And he says, fine, what good is it to me because I am sitting here starving? He trades something that we know to be eternal for something momentary, for this this brief physical pleasure. And that's the concept, that he, he turned away and afterwards he became bitter about it. It says... Uh, when his brother goes to seek out wives that aren't from the place where he got his wives, and he hears his parents saying that they don't like his wives, he says, fine, I'm going to go get more wives from the same place, because I hate everybody. <laughs> he doesn't say this, but, <laughs> but I, 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 he's bitter against his parents, against his circumstances, against everything, and rather than seeking repentance, he goes the opposite direction, and he says, Bad things have happened to me, and and I'm beyond fixing, and I'm going to make it even worse, because it seems like I can only do wrong, and it seems like I can only break things. Let's go break some more things. That's me a little bit reading into this. I tried looking for some help on these verses. There's a few different perspectives out there, but it is interesting talk about it in CGs. Um, But there's that idea again, right? That we talked about last week. Trading something temporary for something eternal. 
and not only trading something temporary, but trading something that is ultimately a lie. That soup was not going to feed him forever the way that his inheritance would. And the pleasures of this world and the promises of this world are not going to take care of us the way God is going to take care of us. So we don't put our faith in the promises that are promised to us by the world, by Satan here. We put our faith in the promises that God has given us. That maybe we do have to skip soup one day. Or maybe we have to suffer physical things wrong, done against us. But we say, yes, do it. Because none of this is permanent. It's temporary in light of the eternal things that are in Christ. And so we look at the suffering and we say, all the more, you know. Take what you need to remove the parts of me that don't work. Remove the parts of me that don't love you, God no matter how much it hurts, because I know that entering heaven, a broken person is better than going to hell having lived a prosperous life. So, in looking at this, in terms of the application, really focus on verses 12 through 17 and, and live out of this kind of perspective saying that the discipline is for my good therefore I'm going to accept the discipline take it for what it is learn from it and praise God even more at the end and hopefully come closer to God and to know him all the more having suffered his discipline one of the more again Puzzling things in Hebrews, to me anyway, is a section, and I can't remember the exact verse, I think it's in chapter 3 or 5, where it, I think it's 5, where it talks about Jesus was perfected by what he suffered. We focus on Jesus, and we realize that if we're going to call ourselves followers of him, if we're going to put our hope in his promises then we cannot consider ourselves exempt from the things that he suffered. And if he was perfected through sufferings, then we have to be able to, again, look at the cross, value that as everything, and then turn back and say, okay, me next, if it comes to that. All right? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for hard words. Thank you for discipline. Thank you for the love that emanates from or yeah, the love that emanates from that discipline. I pray that you would give us a perspective to see it for what it is. To see it as as your correction. And I pray that we would focus on Jesus. It's what we keep talking about in Hebrews. Focus on Jesus. Put your faith in the gospel. Put your faith in his promises and not, not things that are here. Realize that these things are temporary. I pray that that would happen for us. I pray that as we keep talking about these things, it would become rooted more and more deeply in our hearts. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that when the decision comes to us, and it will for all of us, I pray that, that we would choose the promises of God even to our own physical harm, even to our own temporary emotional harm, because we know that in the end, the fruit of that is righteousness. The fruit of that is life. And that goes against everything that we want. We want easy lives. But we haven't been promised that. So don't let us put our faith in those promises, God. Be with us during this time. Help us to put our confidence in these things and to sing loudly of your promises. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is a time to respond. We're going to sing some more songs. You can sing. You can sit there and pray.